God has uh, graciously uh, allowed me the opportunity of preaching the word of God now for over 16 years. But I am ashamed to say and ashamed to confess that in all this time, there is a subject that I have never embraced. Financial giving in the local church. Now, it's usually at this point that church attendees begin to squirm in their seats. The wallet feels heavier in the back pocket. People stop making eye contact with the preacher. But it's usually also at this time in my uh, experience of seeing uh, pastors preach on this subject that the treasurer sits up straight. He begins to rub his hands together, observing the congregation to make sure everyone's listening. I am so glad that I am in a church where none of what I just suggested happened. Everybody's still looking at me and the treasurer isn't even here. So, so we're off to a good start. In a fortnight's time, um, largely due to the fact that we don't have a quorum today, but also because there is some things we need to talk through, we're going to be voting on a new church budget. And I want to tell you up front that it's going to be revolutionary. We're going to be making some big decisions that will greatly impact the future of this local assembly. And I believe that it is essential that we are aware of the teaching and pattern of giving as seen in the pages of the New Testament. I'm hopeful and I'm prayerful that this is not seen uh, in any way as an opportunity to extract money from people, but to help us understand the biblical design that God has for his church in the realm of giving. I want to say by way of introduction here That the church as a whole, I don't mean this local church, I mean the church as a whole, the general church, is largely misinformed about this important subject. And clarity must be given if we're going to honour the Lord with our finances, not just in the church, but in our lives. Many preachers are afraid to broach this subject with the people, with their people, as I have been, in brackets, because it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable thing to stand here and teach on the subject of giving financially. Uh, I've always found it a difficult one because most often people see that as perhaps an attempt to fill the church coffers. And we are all familiar, every one of us have seen or heard of uh, tele-evangelists or tele-preachers who have misused grossly uh, the doctrinal teaching of giving And they have manipulated and emotionally abused people into doing things that is so wrong. And so I think I speak for most preachers who care about the word. It is a nerve-wracking subject in some senses because of what has been done to it. But I hope that you know my motive. I hope there's a proven track record there that I'm not interested in that at all. But rather that every area of our lives including finances, would be in submission to the Word of God. And so this morning, I'd have you join me as I preach a message, which is two-part this week and then in a fortnight before we have our meeting. And I've entitled it God's... No, I haven't. That's wrong. I've entitled it Giving God's Way, part one. And before I pray this morning, I want to give you the outline. I want to give you the roadmap of where we're headed so you know this week and then in a fortnight's time what we're going to be looking at. 
There's four major points that we will consider, three of them today and one in a fortnight's time, Lord willing. The first thing we're going to look at is money and the church. Then we're going to look at misconceptions about giving, secondly. And then we're going to look at, lastly today, motives for giving. And then finally, in a fortnight's time, we'll look at the model of giving in the New Testament before we make decisions together about God's church and the future of it. And I hope you see the wisdom in doing this. Uh, It certainly has been exciting to me to, to have a fresh look at this. And I think you'll find some things that I share today may be quite different to perhaps what you've seen and heard in the past. Let's pray as we consider giving God's way. Lord, I thank you for uh, the time we've already spent in worship, uh, in fellowship with you and with each other. Thank you for the love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts that uh, means that we're just not casual acquaintances here, but we are blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that we can come together in this way, in a public format, uh, at this time without uh, real concern for persecution or Lord, without any major concerns with people knocking on the door and seeking to drag us away, Lord, we realise those times are coming, but thank you for the peace and safety we have at this point. And Lord, as I seek this morning to expose the truths of your word, thank you for all that you've been teaching me in the study. And Lord, I pray that I would be able to help these, my brothers and sisters, have a biblical understanding of what the scripture says about this important aspect of giving, not just financially, In fact, that's the last part, but that it would be giving of all that we are to you, that we would be able to say all to Jesus, I surrender, all to him I freely give, I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. May that be uh, the reality and the outcome of uh, our time together in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing to note before I head into the subject before me is, I'm going to tell you up front, there are a lot of texts and places that we could go today that we're not going to for the sake of time. I'm going to mention them, but we may not get to read all of them. So there may be limited time specifically reading in the word, but it is filled with the word. Okay, so for those who say, well, for the first couple of points, we didn't even open our Bible. Um, You will. Uh, And there'll be plenty of things for us to look at. First of all, money and the church. Money and the church. We live... In a materialistic society, correct? I hope we realise that, otherwise we are already deceived before we begin the message. The pursuit of wealth and possessions is the preeminent God of the Western world. Sadly, many Christians and local churches have adopted this philosophy of thinking. And when it's left unchecked, it brings defamation to the character of God and destruction to the local church. When you get a group of people who operate with worldly thinking yet are Christians, it's deadly. Deadly. Now, I want to suggest that uh, certainly in my experience in uh, history and in churches, this materialistic wealth-driven attitude is seen in the church in two distinct ways. There's probably more, but these are the two that I uh, identify. Two specific areas. Number one, attitude number one is this. A hoarding of funds into the church coffers 
combined with an unwillingness to use the money to extend the kingdom of God. God's design was not term deposits. Now, let me explain what I mean by that before people say, hang on, haven't we got a church term deposit? And we do. God's design for the church was never that they would have a huge amount of money in the bank. It was never designed that we would gather and gather and gather and gather and and have all of this money there and have an unwillingness to use it for God's glory. A hoarding of funds in a local church is an attitude that is not Christ-like. Because God has given that money to his church to be used for his glory, not to hang on to it. Now, let me pause and just say, in case you're wondering, we're not saying that we ought not to have savings necessarily. And we're not saying that we ought not to have a specific goal in mind for those savings. But I have seen over the years many churches with many hundreds of thousands of dollars in the coffers. And it just goes up and up and up and up with no uh, desire to use it for God's glory. That's not the purpose of money in the church. That comes from a materialistic pursuit of wealth and possessions. That's not necessarily, and most often, not a spirit-filled decision from a church. That's the first attitude that is often seen. The second attitude, perhaps seen much more today, is the monument mentality. That is, that we are primarily concerned with building an empire with flash buildings and the modern conveniences and totally ignoring God's design for the church. And this attitude, in my opinion, has come from a misunderstanding of the very word church. Now, I know you've heard me say this so many times, but I'm going to say it again. Church is not a building. But this monument mentality has caused the world and then the church, which are the people, to say, look at that lovely church. That's wrong. That's wrong. And it's come about because we think the church is a building. The church is not a building. The church is a called out group of people. Now, if you say it's a lovely church, I'll say to you, you obviously don't know the people. Because the reality is none of us are lovely. There's no lovely church. The only loveliness to the church is the leader of the church, which is Jesus Christ. But the monument mentality suggests we need to have a fancy building. Now, please don't misunderstand. We have a beautiful building that God has given to us. Okay? We need to be very careful. We keep the balance right, which is going to be part of what we talk about in two weeks' time. We don't want to build an empire. We want to be on a rescue mission for the lost and discipling of the saved. That is our purpose as a church. And our funds ought to be God's design with them. So we need to eradicate early on here in this message our false ideas of what church is and the attitudes that the world suggests to us. And if you are in the world and adopting the philosophies of the world, you will bring that into the church of Jesus Christ. That's deadly. That's why we must have Christ-like thinking. Neither of these attitudes, either a hoarding of funds or the monument mentality, are the pattern that we see in the New Testament at all. And both demonstrate a misunderstanding of the church's purpose in the world. Let Let me make this statement here this morning. It is not wrong to have money, but it is wrong to worship money. Again, money... In the bank is not evil, but money in the heart is. Did you get that? Money in the bank is not evil, but money in the heart is. 
When we talk about money in the church, we need to talk about it biblically. See, here's the reality. When a local church such as us is more concerned with dollars than discipleship, earnings than evangelism, and wealth than the word, we're in dire straits. We cease to operate as a church. Since the church is made up of people, it is critical that each person analyses their own heart to ensure that they are not serving mammon or money and then making decisions in the church from a heart that operates with a worship disorder. So here's how this can go. We could meet, for example, in two weeks' time and make some decisions about the future with a budget and some people might come and they have a worship disorder. They are more concerned with the things of this life than they are with the pursuit of Jesus Christ and his word. Those people come together and then other people come together who genuinely care about God's word and what he has to say and how we ought to delegate the funds. When those two groups come together, we quickly have division in the church of Jesus Christ when it comes to making decisions. And that is a very, very dangerous thing. So it is absolutely essential that we analyze our hearts and say for certain lord before you and me there is nothing there is no sin there is no idol before you and i that i would come with the philosophy of the world and make decisions for your church how dangerous that would be were it to be the case here you see the bible is very clear on this important subject of the idol of wealth and money turn with me really quickly if you would to hebrews 13 And verse 5, one of the most misused passages in the whole Bible, Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Again, we'll just look up a couple of particulars as we go through this message. But Hebrews 13 and verse 5, I believe Paul is the author and this is what he says. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Now, we are very, probably all of us, myself included in the past, we have often used this verse. The Lord is always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's true, right? That's in that text. The Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. But we often forget the context. And the context is this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here is the truth that you need to understand. The greatest possession, the greatest treasure that any man can have is the possession and the presence of God. You know how you keep your life free from the love of money? Understand that the greatest treasure in all the world is the presence of God within. Who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when you get discontent about life in any aspect, you need to come back to this wonderful theological truth. The permanent, uh, ever abiding presence of God within That's how I gain contentment in this life. When money is taken from me, when people swindle me, when things don't go the way that I want them to do to go and I feel like I'm getting discontent. The one truth that I hammer home in my own heart is this. I will never leave you nor forsake you because the greatest joy, the greatest thing in all the world is God lives within. Wow, that's an amazing truth. Keep your life free from the love of money, Paul says. We won't turn to these, but 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And when I was growing up, I heard that verse differently somehow. I heard it like this. 
for the possession of money is the root of all evil. And I used to think it's wrong to be rich. God has never called anybody to be rich. Um, And I I grew up uh, listening to Fiddler on the Roof with my mother where that man would sing, If I Were a Rich Man. Some of you know that song. And uh, so I used to always think, okay, well, the Bible says, you know, riches, they're, they're evil. Riches are not evil. Love of riches is evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Look what it does. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, and pierced them through with many pangs. Solomon was a very wealthy man in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Matthew 6.19 verse, uh, Matthew 6.19 to 21, the Lord Jesus says, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven heaven Matthew 6 24 says no one can serve two masters for he'll either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money we need to be clear as a church here this morning it is an impossibility it cannot coexist you cannot serve God and serve money you cannot have an idol in the heart and yet try and be right with God it doesn't work there's no sitting on the fence here you're on one side or the other In summary, let me say this to us. Ensure that there are no idols in the heart. Only spirit-filled Christians should engage in decision-making for God's church. Did you get that? Only spirit-filled Christians should engage in making decisions for God's church. We do not need logic we do not need business acumen we need the guiding impulses of the spirit of god based upon the word of god which lead each member to the right decision that's what we need in every category not just in the realm of finance in every decision made by a local church and let me just say this as a little extra here a unanimous church decision does not denote a spirit-filled church, but a spirit-filled church will always be unanimous. Let me say that a different way. That was probably somewhat, maybe perhaps confusing. Here's the summary. Just because a decision is made and everybody agrees doesn't mean it was a spirit-filled decision, but a spirit-filled decision by a church where every member is walking in the spirit will be unanimous because the God that we serve is a God of unity. If I walk in the spirit, I will come to the same conclusion. And that's why we believe here that things ought to be unanimous. Because if they're not unanimous, there's something wrong. And we need to go and make sure each of us have it right. We have the understanding right, the communication right. And most importantly, our heart is right before the Lord. Money in the church, we could talk so much more about it, but we'll leave it there for now. Second thing, which will take us just a little bit longer here this morning, is misconceptions about giving. Misconceptions about giving. If you have had any experience in church over years, over the years, various different assemblies and and groups of people, there are all types of different ideas as it relates to giving. I know some people who would say it's evil that we have an offering bag here. I would say I would uh, I would hear some people say there's no such thing. We shouldn't have an offering bowl. Uh, there's all sorts of different ideas out there. Now I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with any of those right now. I will later, but not just yet. But when we come to church giving, there's words like tithes, 
We've all heard that. There's word like, words like free will offerings. I won't even go there. Faith promise missions givings. Some of you who've come from different locations would be familiar with that. Love offerings. And so on. All these different terms. We have to ask ourselves, well, which one is right? What should we be doing here at MCCBC? On top of these questions, there's other questions we have to ask. Things like, how much should I give? 10%? 30%? 50%? 100%? By the way, 100% is not right. If you give 100%, you're in trouble. Should I only give to my local church? What about other important organisations? Who should make the decisions regarding the money? Elders? Deacons? The whole church? Just a prayer group? Who, who, who should make the decisions? Here's an interesting question. Should I still give if I disagree with the aspects, some aspects of the church? Should I give if I don't like that my pastor doesn't wear a tie? Should a church be involved in community fundraising? What if I don't want to give? These questions... And many others are real questions and good questions that, from what I, from what I have experienced, that is, nobody really wants to talk about. Nobody really wants to answer except to just give a, a, a flippant comment and expect everybody to follow. Well, that's not how it's going to be here. Well, not while I'm behind the pulpit. I want to bring specific light and truth from the scriptures about some of these misconceptions. So the first thing that I want to note as, I guess, a bit of a sub point here, there's about 30. No, there's not, but there's quite a few sub points for us to look at here. First thing we need to understand, we, get, need to, we need to get this, each of us. Nothing that you have is really yours. Nothing. Nothing. Not some, nothing. Sometimes we are deceived into thinking that our homes, our cars... Our bank accounts, our investments, our subdivisions, our cattle, our material possessions are ours. The Bible makes it clear that God owns everything and we are at best stewards of his wealth. So let's take the house and property for a moment. Again, we're not going to turn to these. Let me just read them out to you because we'll run out of time otherwise. Your house and your property. Psalm 24 verse 1, a great verse. The earth... Is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So, you know how when you first perhaps bought that house and it was all marked out by a surveyor and maybe you built your place and, and this was your property. Now, that's true in one sense, but it's really not. That earth that you have built that house on, that you have spent your hard-earned money, none of it's yours. It's God's earth. It's God's house. And everybody in it is God's by creation. So you are at best stewards. So when you go home today... And you walk into your house, you open the door, you ought to be able to turn around and say, Lord, this, this is, thank you for letting me live in your house, because it's yours. We need to get the mentality right here. So we talk about house and property. What about treasures and jewellery? Some of you may, maybe have got some necklaces or some rings or some earrings or whatever on. Let me tell you what Haggai 2 verse 8 says. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, we're being a little bit funny in this, but the reality of it is we need to understand that everything we have is God's. It's God's. We don't own anything. And that's proven by the fact that when you die, zero goes with you. Zero. Not even the clothes that you are wearing 
Go with you. Gold and silver, he says, the treasures. How about your physical strength and power? Deuteronomy 8.18, this was a great verse. I must have read it before, but I don't remember it. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. That's a good verse. If God has allowed you to have any kind of wealth, and everybody in this room has some kind of wealth, you all do. You all had clothes, you've probably all had a meal. We have wealth, and we have a lot of wealth compared to some places. God gave you the power to get that wealth. And then the last one, just to consider here, under this first aspect of nothing is really yours, is if that wasn't enough, what about your very life and breath? Acts 17, 25 God gives to all mankind life and breath. And if that wasn't enough, he finalizes it by saying, and everything. Nothing that you have is really yours. So when it comes to the realm of giving, not just, by the way, may I say, into these little, uh, these little uh, pockets here. That's not what we're talking about, life. Okay, this is a very small part of giving. When we talk about life, nothing that you have is really yours. It's all God's. That's the first thing. Second thing, and this one, might, um, this one might be an interesting one for us. Tithing is not the New Testament standard of giving. In other words, stop tithing. Now, I know for a fact that there are going to be perhaps some people, maybe even listening to this message, who may even call me during the week and say, whoa, hang on, we've been told all our lives we need to be tithing. Well, we're going we're gonna to nail this down today so that we're clear on how this works. I want you to turn with me to a place that you probably don't go very often, Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Look for Matthew and go back a few pages if you're not familiar with where it is. Matthew, uh, excuse me, Malachi, chapter 3. And uh, this is perhaps a little bit of my history coming out. I have heard this verse so many times in my life. And I'm about to expose that it's a misconception. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. We won't read all the context around it. You take the time to do that. Verse 10 says this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, And pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now here's how the message goes. Church, you need to give 10% of all of your income into the bag here this morning, week by week. Because when you do that and all the tithe comes in from everybody, God will open the windows of heaven and he will bless this place like never before. Okay, That's the message I've heard over many, many years. Now, one of the problems, one of the many problems with this teaching is that this scripture has been yanked completely out of context and has been applied incorrectly. And I want to show you how this works. So we're looking at tithing is not the New Testament standard of giving. And here are some sub points to consider under this. First of all, tithing was essentially the taxation system for the nation of Israel. Tithing was essentially the taxation system for the nation of Israel. So let's go back here for a moment to the children of Israel, the nation that God loved and called to be his own. Here is how this works. There is no division in the Old Testament of church and state. 
Okay, you know how we have that now? We operate as a separate entity here. We obey the laws of the state, but we are not a nation. We are not a nation here. We're not an accepted nation. The children of Israel are a nation as well as a spiritual people. No division. The Israelites operated on what, under what's called a theocratic government system. Wonderful system simply means this. God was their ruler. Now we're going back to a theocratic situation in glory. Look forward to that. But while we're here, we do not operate under a theocratic nation, simply meaning that we are not ruled directly by God. Our lives are ruled by his word, but God is not our direct leader in the world today. You understand what I mean by that? I hope you do. Today, we are a spiritual people, not a physical nation. We are not the nation of Christians here gathered. We are subject to the laws of the nation of Australia and the laws of God as spiritual people. When there is a conflict between these two kingdoms, we say with the apostles, we ought to obey God rather than man. And by the way, church, that time is coming where you will need to do that more because the world is on a spiral downhill and we know that. So in other words, tithing was the GST, the income tax for the children of Israel. I'm going to show you how that works in just a moment. So first of all, tithing was essentially the taxation system for the nation of Israel. Secondly, the Mosaic law stipulated three distinct tithes. Now this is probably going to be revolutionary because you and I probably in any history of church have only been told about one of them, which is 10%. Tithe, 10%. But in actual fact, there's three. I want you to turn real quick with me, and we're going to have to be quick. Leviticus chapter 27. And again, I'm just going to fly through some of this, and you can perhaps take a copy of the notes later, follow up in your own time. Leviticus 27 verse 30. Moses records for us what God says. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord's. Now, again, for now, you're going to have to just trust what I am saying until you get the chance to read all of it around it. This was specifically called the tithe for the Levites. This here is the tithe for the Levites. Quickly go to Numbers chapter 18, which speaks of exactly the same thing. Numbers chapter 18, the next book. Get a quick Old Testament survey here. Numbers 18. Beginning in verse 21, speaking of the same tithe to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do their service in the tent of meeting. This here is the tithe for the Levites, specifically the stewards of the nation. If we were going to look at it today, we would say this is what is going to look after those who God has given the right to rule in a nation. This is money that goes towards the government system of that day, a spiritual system as well, that pays for the Levites. Because you know what? The Levites had no property. They had no inheritance. They were to be looked after by the people. A wonderful concept of God's economy another day. Second tithe. We're the tithe for the Levites. The second tithe is the tithe for the national feasts. National feasts. Deuteronomy chapter 12. This is so unusual, this particular one. Deuteronomy chapter 12. This would be cool if we did this in our day. Deuteronomy 12. 
Now, we will not take the time here to read all that I had planned. Let me find an appropriate place here. Okay, let's begin in verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 6. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions contribution that you present your vow offerings your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock and there you shall eat before the lord your god and you shall rejoice you and your households in all that you undertake in which the lord your god has blessed you you shall not do you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes for you have not yet Come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to inherit, and when he, come, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, or your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. And, and the text goes on. Here is, here is the point. And this was an amazing situation, a national tithe for the feast festivals of the nation. They would bring all of that 10% that they have, a different 10%, and they would bring it together for national feast days and they would consume and eat it all. So all of the, the, the first, uh, the, the, the good cattle and all of the good wine and the good grain, they would bring it together and have a big national feast. In fact, uh, John MacArthur calls this the potluck dinner of the nation. This is what they did. They'd come together and they would all devour it and they would invite, uh, they'd invite the Levite who doesn't have his own portion, etc., etc., and they'd come together to do this tithe. So we have a 10% for the Levites. We have a 10% for the national Thanksgiving Day, so to speak. And then lastly, we have a tithe for the poor in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Just turn a couple of pages and we'll just quickly look at this as well. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 28 At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. This is the welfare system of the nation. This was God's way of our tithing to the poor in this particular day and age. Three tithes. A tithe for the Levites, 10%. A tithe for the national Thanksgiving feasts and festivals, 10%. And then a tithe for the poor, which is interesting. It's 10% every three years. So if you do your maths, it's 3.3333333%. So when you calculate all that up, we realise that the tithe of the Old Testament nation of Israel was 23.3% of their entire income. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment to help us realise how this works in our context. To submit to the system of tithing by necessity means the reinstatement of the Levitical system and the festivals of Israel. If you are going to tithe... According to the scriptures in the Old Testament, we need the Levites back and we need the feast and the festivals back. And I'm reasonably confident nobody wants to go through the Day of Atonement 
Okay, that is not a pretty sight. And I, and I speak as a joke, but the reality of it is we come back under ceremonial laws of the Old Testament in order to obey Malachi, which says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that my house may be full. As I said, it's interesting to note that the tithing of the day was not 10% like so many suggest, but 23.3. So if we're going to misapply the scriptures, which we are if we do this, then we need to at least demand from our people 23.3%. And just to be sure, what we should do is make sure you all produce your paychecks to ensure that it really is 23.3%. That's the tithing system of the nation of Israel. Now, there is much more we could talk about in that. And we could talk about what about the tithing beforehand. Some people argue, well, Abraham and Jacob, they tithed beforehand. We could talk about that and maybe another day. But let me just say this to us now. Tithing is not a New Testament command. It is a Levitical system for the children of Israel as a nation. Now, I want to pause here and just say, if, if you are someone who gives 10%, that doesn't mean you're in sin That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. But what I am saying is that that is not what the scripture tells us we have to do. Understand? So when a preacher gets up and says, hey, we need to give a tithe, that's not right. Okay, and we'll talk about what is right in a little while. Number three. Number three. So we have tithing was essentially the taxation system for the nation of Israel. Tithing was the Mosaic law, which stipulated three distinct tithes. And then thirdly, tithes were generally agricultural, not monetary. We've got to remember the context here. This is a nation that what they would do is they would bring their cattle or that which they have gained from their agricultural work throughout their year to the Levites. And they would then disperse that accordingly. This is not a monetary tithe. The only time that it becomes money was when the harvest was too great to transport from where they are to the tabernacle or later on the temple. And then they would sell it and bring the bag of money that they have made from it to the temple or the tabernacle. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 14.24. So again, if we go back to the tithing system, we all need to bring cattle, put them in the offering bowl. We all need to bring our wheat and our wine and all the produce of agriculture because that's the setting by which this whole context is. Now, uh, I'm being a little bit facetious, but that's the reality of the context in which tithing was, particularly when we get to Malachi. Herdsmen, people like that who are working the land. Most of us, for the most part, are not working directly the land for income. Tithing was generally agricultural and not monetary. The fourth thing, before we get to our last point this morning, and this is important, tithes are only mentioned six times in the New Testament and never in the form of a command, simply a commentary. So, for example, when you get to Hebrews, four times, I believe it's the Apostle Paul who wrote Hebrews. Four times in Hebrews, in four verses, he talks about tithing. That's four of our six times in the whole New Testament. And those four are in relationship to Melchizedek back with Abraham in the Old Testament. The other two times are by the Lord Jesus who who, uh, tells the Pharisees and the scribes that they are interested in tithing mint and that, but their hearts are not interested in the things of God. So when it comes to tithing, there is no imperative. There's no command whatsoever in the New Testament. Now, that seems really strange to me 
If tithing is so critical to the local church, why is there not once a command? And yet there are many times in the Old Testament, God says to the children of Israel, bring the tithes. You've stopped tithing. Come back to tithing. I will punish you for not tithing, etc., etc. Not once in the New Testament is there a command. Neither, may I add, is there ever a percentage or an amount mentioned when it comes to giving in the realm of the local church. And we'll have more about that in a fortnight's time. The final point for us this morning, which is critical, we have, uh, we have three points for us to look at this morning. We've looked at two. This is the third, and this is the motives for giving. Motives for giving. Money in the church, misconceptions about giving, now motives for giving. And then in a fortnight's time, we'll deal with the model of New Testament giving. I think you probably know the scripture and me well enough to know that as we look at this truth, we must come back to the character of God and the word of God for our motives. What are the motives? A couple of sub points here for us before we finish. And before I give them to you, let me remind you that Giving is essential. Giving is essential. And again, we'll look at that later on. But giving is essential as part of Christianity. You cannot have Christianity without giving. And I don't necessarily mean in monetary terms. I mean giving in any sense. Everything we do as a Christian is a gift. We give all the time. This is not a message about how much money are you giving. This is about your life in the realm of giving fully. Because here is what I have come to appreciate in my own life. When God has my life, he has my wallet. When God has my entire character and my being, there's nothing I withhold from him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that I give every dollar that I have in my bank account specifically to the local church. That's not what we're going with at all. We're talking about absolute surrender in the realm of who God is, who I am. I'm bought with a price. I'm not my own. Everything I have is his. From that comes our giving. So what are the motives for giving? Well, the first motive is the grace of God. The grace of God. The word charis, charisma, we get from charis. It means grace. It literally means gift. Gift. When you think of the word grace, you need to think of the word gift. It's the same word that's used for our spiritual gifts. That's where people get the idea of charismatica. Charismatic gifts, the sign gifts. Charis or charis is this word gift or grace. The grace of God. So we say, what's the motive for our giving? God's giving. That's the motive for our giving. God's grace. Where is the grace of God most vividly depicted? Lord Jesus Christ. We sang about it. Descends from the glory of heaven. To this sin-cursed earth with one purpose in mind. To fulfill the Father's calling upon his life. And to rescue you and I from our sin. And you say, well, how does that form a motive? Well, when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in a fortnight's time, which is all about giving in the local church. This is what Paul uses as a motive in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. This is what he says. For you know the grace, charis, gift, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You say, what is the motive for giving? The motive for giving is the gospel. 
The motive for giving is what Jesus Christ has done. And we look at that and as we perceive that glorious gift of Jesus Christ in our place as our substitute, we cannot but, if we see it correctly, say, wow, what a gift. How could I not give my all? How could I withhold from him who withheld nothing from me? How could I for a moment do an Ananias and Sapphira and pretend that I'm giving everything and really holding back in my heart? When Jesus Christ descended from the glories of heaven, this doesn't work. This is an identity crisis, if I get this wrong. Here is the summary. It is the natural response of a Christian who understands the grace of God to give. Not just of their pay, but of their person. Did you get that? The natural response of understanding the gospel will be to give all. Will be to give all. See, this is, this is the hard part. See, we, we get to a hard point here because in a lot of ways, 23.3% would be much better. Because 23.3%, what we do is we say, okay, that's fine. I just allocate, you know, around about a fifth of my, my income or whatever comes in, that's cool. And I just give that and it's done, it's finished. When we get to the New Testament, that's not what the Lord Jesus says. The Lord Jesus says, I don't want 23.3% of your income. I want all of you. I want your heart. The letter of the law is done. We now operate in the realm of the spirit. I want you. And when God has you, we withhold nothing. It's all his. How things change. The grace of God. Secondly, and these are also interconnected, the love of God. Excuse me, the love for God. Love for God. Motive is the grace of God. And secondly, love for God. Uh, In this little sub point here. And we'll be quick on some of these others. But this one, I just want to take a few moments. We tend to think of giving only in terms of finance. This is completely wrong. Okay? We need to eradicate this. Don't separate this to be about money. This is not about money. Every act, every deed that you and I do, every work for God must arise from the motive of love for God or it will be counterfeit. Did you get that? Every act, every ministry, every service that you do in the name of Jesus Christ that is not springing forth from the motive of love for God supremely is counterfeit. That's a false work. Now, amazingly, providentially, graciously, God still uses our counterfeit works for his glory. And to that we say amen because the reality is so often it's not the case when we serve God. Often we do it for the responses of others or for the perceptions that others have. I want you to see me in a certain way or I want to see you in a certain way. So we do things because we're concerned about the the, the ideas of men. Faulty. But amazingly, God still uses it. But we ought not to live that way. We ought to have everything we do arise from a motive of love for God. Let me ask us this. What was the father's motive in giving? For God so loved the world that he gave. Love. Paul tells the Christian, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love and then do. Walk in love, then do. Don't do without the love. 
And you know how you get the love? You say, well, okay, I really struggle with this matter of motive of love. How do I get the love? You go to point one, the grace of God. Look at it, survey it, perceive it, observe it, get deeper and deeper and analyze the gospel of God. Let me tell you, your heart will be filled with love for God. And then you will operate as you ought to in your actions and your activities and your attitudes. You say, well, I'm not sure. Is that right? Does, does everything have to be with the motive of love? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3 says this. If I give away, give. If I give away all that I have. And if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, this is futile. This is is worthless. You go be a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ without love and it's worthless. God might use it, but it's worthless on your account. So here's another little summary statement for you. You can give without love, but you cannot love without giving. Impossible. The Lord Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. A gift that is given in any form will only meet with the approval of God when it originates from a heart of love for God. That's the summary. Thirdly, we have two more, and I'm running out of time, so I'll be quick. The grace of God, love for God. Thirdly, faith in God. Faith in God. The Christian is called to a life of total dependence on God. Not partial, total In everything, all the time, 100% of the time. That's a big call. What is faith? Faith is that fixed, unshakable conviction that God can be trusted in every situation. Every situation. That's what faith is. Are you walking in faith is the question. Do I trust that in every single situation I can rely upon God? I can trust him. I can depend upon him. Now, here's an interesting thought. Giving must be based upon faith because Paul says whatever is not of faith is sin Romans 14:23 Now some people have tried to condense that verse and try and make it speak about something very specific in the text but as I've studied that out that is a general principle for all of life whatever is not done by faith is sin Whatever is not done in total dependence on God is sin because we are called all the time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Failure to do that is independence, not dependence. Now we all know, I'm sure, that it is somewhat easier to give in faith when we have plenty. Right? It's not really that hard. If you've got plenty of money and uh, you just give some, well that's not really all that tough. But God calls the Christian to give when it's humanly illogical. Humanly illogical. We see that, and again, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to look specifically at that. This does not mean, bear in mind, that we operate with a casual flippancy about money. That's not right. But it does mean that we must be obedient to the impulses of the Spirit, even when we cannot see how our needs will be met. So when you... No, and if if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you will know the impulses of the Spirit of God within when there is something that doesn't come, doesn't originate from you because you know what? You love this world. You love money, generally speaking. It's not a spiritual, you know, your your natural inclination is not to give. That's a spirit-filled thing. And when the Lord puts on your heart a need or a person or a situation, 
We know that's the impulse of the Spirit of God. And sometimes we look at it and we go, well, hang on, I've only got, I've only got uh, $50 in my account and I've got some bills due and uh, the Lord, you're putting on my heart to give this to someone. How is this going to work? Illogical. The financial officers of the world would say, you are being ridiculous. And yet when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when you get to other places, you read that these disciples, these churches gave out of their poverty following the Spirit's leading. So we, we need to operate in faith. We must be obedient to the impulses of the Spirit. That's another motive for giving faith in God. Fourthly, second last, conformity to God. Why should I give? What's my motive? Because I want to be like God. Because my identity is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 tells us that. Jesus Christ was giving constantly. Aside from the ultimate gift of salvation, was it not Jesus who gave sight to the blind, life to the dead, food to the hungry, time to the outcasts, prayers for the disciples, and even gifts to the church in Ephesians 4? We're called to be like God, be followers of God, imitators of God, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, and God is the greatest of givers. Why should I be a giver? Because that's the nature of God. And I'm called to be like him. Lastly, as we close, another motive, the approval of God. We see in the scriptures that the Christian is to strive to please his master. 2 Timothy 2.4 says our aim is to please the one who enlisted us. We've been called And we want to please our God. And one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us. And we want the reality of that to be well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I've given you this and you have served me well. The approval of God. I can't think of anything greater in all of history than one day to stand before my Savior and hear him say, not because I'm praiseworthy, but because he's praiseworthy. You have served me well. You didn't spend your life as a rebel in the Christian realm. You spent your life, for the most part, seeking to honour and serve me. What a joy. What a thrill that will be. See, God is pleased and glorified by our grace-motivated giving. However, an outward, showy, apathetic gift is repudiated by God. God is not pleased. That is not a sweet-smelling savour, as we read of in the Scriptures. And you know what else? We will lose eternal reward for a faulty motive. We will. We will lose eternal reward. On that day of judgment, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us it's all in a big pile there and the fire of God will come and it will burn and only that which is worthwhile will remain. You know what is worthwhile? It's that which has the correct motive. That which was done for the glory of God. Like Jesus said, when you give a cold cup of water in my name, I am encouraged and blessed and honoured by that. But when you just give the cold cup of water, but it has nothing to do with my own glory, that is worthless. That's nothing that is useless to the Lord. May we come away today from the cultural perceptions about money. From the unbiblical misconceptions taught by so many churches. And then may we analyse our heart's motives in giving to ensure that they are in line with the Scriptures. This is absolutely essential as we continue in a fortnight's time to look at the model of giving in the New Testament. Lord, thank you for this time. Uh, Lord, we have laboured long in your word and much has been said. And I thank you for the strength and enablement to share uh, these truths. 
Lord, I pray you'd use them. I pray you'd help us to uh, be recalibrated in our mind, in our thinking, so that we, we don't have this uh, achievement mentality. You know, we've given our tithe, we've given this, we've done that, and somehow you're pleased with uh, a percentage of us, whereas we read in the New Testament that you are calling for our heart. You're calling for our entire character, our, our person. The standard is so much greater in this new gospel dispensation. Uh, it's not about law, it's about love. Oh Lord, increase our love for you. Help us to surrender all. Help this message not to have been communicated in such a way that we would go away from today and think, I really ought to give more money, but rather that am I truly Walking with the Lord, does he have every part of me? Uh, am I honouring him with both my lips and my life? Uh, is the meditation of my heart and my mouth acceptable in his sight? Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, you have encouraged us to keep our heart, to guard our heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. We know our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Lord, help us to be ever so careful to examine, to search our hearts, to try them, to ensure they're cleansed before you. Help us, Lord, today to come away with an understanding of this as we sing this final song together, which is such a confronting song, I surrender all. May that be a reality. In Jesus' name.